This week on Life and Faith. You go through trauma and you're always discovering how deep the fractures go. Um, you know, I'm 20 years later, I'm still experiencing uh, headline fractures that I didn't know that was there, you know, and they come out. You know, I had to, in order to go back to my loft three blocks away from where the tower stood, um, my, I had three children uh, who became ground zero children. Um, literally to go home was to face ground zero. And that has defined my um, 30 a decade of journeying through that trauma. You couldn't have paid me a million dollars a year to do something different. Why does consciousness exist in the first place? Forgiveness and reconciliation takes strength. It was a bit of a culture shock when I hit Sydney. We hope the truth will out. This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Well, today, a topic that I'm slightly obsessed with and one we consider on Life and Faith from time to time. What does beauty of the sort we find in nature, in art, in literature and film have to do with faith, spirituality, the religious sensibility? What are the ways that art and faith speak to each other? And how might one enhance the other, perhaps be essential to the other? Someone who's spent a lifetime not only as an acclaimed artist but a deep theological thinker and writer is American artist Marco Fujimura. You need to see his artwork to know how beautiful it is. He uses a technique called Nihonga that uses mineral pigments, platinum, gold, silver, that are hand pulverized in preparation. It's slow art. Slow in preparation, slow in drying, it takes time trapping light in between layers of paint. And the result is abstract art with vivid colours that are really stunning. As I say, you need to see it. You can read his books, of course, though. The latest and the catalyst for today's conversation is Art and Faith, A Theology of Making. I spoke with him from his home and studio in Princeton, New Jersey, and began by asking, what does art and beauty have to do with God and faith? I grew up non-religious. I, um, uh, my father is a uh, well-known research scientist. My mother was an educator. I was born in the United States, uh, then spent some time in Sweden, and then Japan, and then back to the U.S. So, yeah, you so had you quite the out. journey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and not knowing you know, exactly who I am either. And, but formative times were in Japan. But I, I've always felt even though I knew nothing about Christianity or religion, really, I always felt that art was spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember even as a child painting and having this energy rush through me. And I thought everybody had this experience, you know, where you you feel tapped in uh, some, you know, some some force and or the universe you know, and you go to middle school and you find out that, no, that's not something you talk about. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't a conversation in in the playground. No, but (laughs) I always felt the spirit, you know, and and then I didn't um, become a follower of Christ until I was in my 20s. 
but the way that happened was I connected that experience with the voice of Christ. I, it was it was kind of this direct overlap that I couldn't deny. Mm. That's fascinating. I wonder what beauty of the sort we sometimes get in art might be a hint of the divine or hints that there might be a creator. It seems like you experienced it that way. Yeah, totally. It's only an intimation that uh, I, I believe all of us can tap into. And beauty, obviously, I, I wrote a book called um, Silence and Beauty to try to explain the Japanese aesthetic uh, flowing into, at least to my mind, uh, something a uh, little bit broader than the Western definition of beauty, you know, which mm. tends to be about perfection and uh, sublime and excellence and, and all that. Uh, Japanese definition involves a deeper sense of longing, uh, especially through the experience of sacrifice and death. So, so the falling cherry blossoms uh, is the most beautiful, uh, rather than a cherry blossoms, you know, uh, blooming uh, at its heights, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because there is sadness to that now Japanese call it mono no aware and they it's it's pathos of things uh but Japanese beauty has uh, intrinsic connection to nature and also uh, deep ties to spirituality uh, which is a little different than I, I I find Western notion of beauty yeah so I found that very interesting in your book as well I wouldn't mind returning to that in a moment the pathos of yes. life and as it's sometimes reflected in art but tell me about the ways in which imagination is an important part of being human yeah so we have healthy suspicion toward imagination we say <laughs> You know, well, you're imagining that, or you know, we connected to fantasy, which which is understandable. But really, when you uh, talk to clinical psychologists, you know, you they they tell you uh, that even even how we see things just normatively, and how I identify some things, um, you know, a truck or a deer or whatever, the mind is going through this recalibration. Uh, severe complex recalibration and you uh, understand how complex this is in certain patients who has lost uh, part of the brain. Um, so imagination is actually key to rational thought. You know, it's not, it's not fantasy. Um, and there's a difference between fantasy, which is a kind of a idol making that we do all the time, actually. But it's different from the faculty of imagination. And um, there, there's a lot of overlap between um, spiritual vision and imagination as well, uh, which writers like William Blake, uh, you know, have accentuated in his poems and his, his art. So there, there's there's plenty of connections. I, I think after the Enlightenment, when this rational um, reality really set in as the uh, the most trustworthy, then the medieval imagination began to wane. Um, but but today, I think you're finding uh, that that medieval mindset has been given a resurgence uh, in, in uh, certainly in popular culture and, and in art, um, but I think also in theology and philosophy. Mm. Now, you, you do write about the danger of usefulness 
and talk about things like art and literature and music <laughs> as supposedly extra things, non-essential yeah. things. But you're you're trying to argue that, they, that actually they are essential. Now, in what way are yeah. they essential things? Yeah, art art is absolutely useless. <laughs> And therefore, it's essential to human beings. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, that's the paradox. Yeah. Um, well, you know, and art, art um, fundamentally is a gift, and it is it is not meant to be uh, completely commoditized or be useful or pragmatic. Uh, I, I talk about utilitarian pragmatism, uh, combining two words, you know, utility is good and pragmatism is good. But when you combine those as, as the basis of uh, judgment toward what lasts, right? So we want things to be enduring and we are really longing for enduring experiences. But since we are lit, we believe that the, the world is a limited resource Darwinian universe, we limit ourselves and, and truncate that possibility immediately before even we begin. And it's it's the artist, it's the music, uh, it's, it's it's theater that that transcends that somehow. And um, you know, you don't have to be a religious person to experience this. There, there's a re reality of transcendence uh, in a sunset. And we, when we understand human nature and human love. Um, we understand also that, you know, you, when you're taking somebody out on a date, you don't talk about accounting, you don't talk about <laughs> pragmatics. You don't, Not if you, you want it to go well. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Unless you're dating an account, maybe. maybe <laughs> you know. But but really, I mean, it, it's about beauty, right? It's, you, wanna, you want to have that transcendent experience together and you want to, because love is ultimately something that that is extra um utilitarian and extra pragmatic i mean it's it's it transcends that yeah. so love in order to love somebody you, you waste time with that person you you know you don't put things on the calendar and you don't measure is this resume building for me or not mm. no those those that would be the you know the opposite of love so so that everybody knows this right but but we seem to make decisions, major decisions in institutions and in governments in, in all sorts of ways, in, in schools, in education, um, as if to say, well, the, you know, the bottom line, the utility is the only thing that matters that, you know, and when, when really human formation is so much more potentially beautiful uh, than, than the bottom line. Now, the Bible talks about God as light. I wondered if that has informed your work as an artist. I'm going to guess that it has in some way. Yeah. So God is light and Jesus specifically is light. I'm the light of the world, Jesus says. But God is also in darkness, right? So Psalm 139, uh, even, even mm. in the depth of hell, you know, God, God is there. And, and that, that, that's evoking Genesis because Genesis begins not with light, but with darkness, right? Uh, God's self-sufficient, all-sufficiency, like God was actually perfectly fine in darkness. <laughs> <laughs> so why, is the, why is light necessary? Well, it's necessary for us. Right. And therefore, light is the boundary through which God frames the world for us. Yeah. Yeah. Now that alone there, that, 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 you know, what I just said, you, you can just 
We think could spend about. a long time thinking about that. <laughs> no, because it's a flip of how we see value in a way. You know, we only see things that are, you know, bright and, you know, um, screaming at us perhaps to, you know, to pay attention to. But, but really, uh, human beings have this capacity, deep capacity to understand darkness. Yeah. And that's that's one of the great qualities of uh, being made in the image of God. And, you know, when, when an artist like me, a visual artist, is working um, with, with sight and light and so forth. A, a, a good example, last night, uh, we had a storm pass through Princeton, New Jersey here. And uh, the lights went out uh, for several hours. And my assistant and I and my wife, uh, we were home eating. And, you know, so we decided um, instead of complaining about it or waiting for the light to come back on, we would take a candlelight and go upstairs where some of my gold gold paintings were, you know, displayed, right? Yeah. So we went into this uh, room where one of my gold paintings were and we just used one candlelight that lit it, sat, sat in front of it. <laughs> and, and it was absolutely beautiful mm-hmm. because Japanese materials, especially 17th century materials that I use, gold, silver, and minerals, uh, pulverized minerals, um, they are designed for diffused light, right? It, it was pre-electricity, right? So, yeah. so it's meant to be refractive and it, it's, it's meant to create light through the materials so yes, at low yes. light it I, you can actually see it better yes so right? the sense of of <laughs> that's the point right so it's coming yeah. out of darkness oh, and right. showing something beautiful not only out of darkness but out of brokenness presumably yeah and this is universally true you know mark rothko wanted the lights to be lowered because his paintings you can't see in a bright spotlight of a gallery um and you know i I think many artists are very highly sensitized to this especially the shift of light and and at the ebb where uh you know where the darkness meets the light that's where your eyes are most active in a sense, both, you know, technically they're rods and cones and they call it Pachesian shift. This doctor Pachesian found out that, that at certain level of light, when the light is lowered, uh, like at dusk, greens and reds become much brighter uh, to, to us, you know, sensory um, perception wise. And, and that's because our rods and cones are both operating. Cones are the color perceptors. And when the light is too bright, it becomes literally about distinction between you know, dark and light. So really black and white um, perception uh, in our minds. This is Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with American artist Marco Fujimura. In his book, Art and Faith, he talks about the ancient Japanese art form, kintsugi, which repairs broken bowls, originally teaware, reassembling them with lacquer and then covering that in gold. The whole idea is that it takes broken things and not only restores them, but makes them more beautiful than the original. Beauty out of brokenness is the idea. 
which has profound resonance with Fujimura's understanding of his Christian faith. The Japanese art of uh, kintsugi is part of the long tradition of tea ceremony, where they venerated the imperfection side. They they consider imperfection to be perfect, <laughs> and and at least leads into something more human, and and more beautiful ultimately. And and so you know kintsugi is this venerable art form of mending broken pottery with Japan lacquer and gold. And I've been spending a lot of time with the Kintsugi master to collaborate on a project. Uh, we're calling it Kintsugi Academy, where we are actually trying to help people understand the process of brokenness. Um, so this is not just the craft of Kintsugi, but it's, it's really understanding that we need to be part of a community that is not only okay with us being broken, but that there is a way that through our hands by mending bowls ourselves, you know, uh, with this uh, method of kintsugi that's modified for contemporary times and, uh, you know, three hours that we have, um, that somehow this moving your hands to mend something, um, even if it's for the first time, reconnects the neurons in our in our brains that's been traumatized and that's been fragmented and splintered um, and uh, it's it's been proven by trauma uh, counselors that this is true of any kind of making actually um, you know this idea the Japanese idea of uh, Kintsugi or uh, um, Japanese aesthetic really speaks about again this uh, idea of sacrifice or death leading into some wholeness rather than just this disintegration um it it is an acknowledgement of the pathos of things um but ultimately it is about beauty and it is about what truly moves us uh, to be fully human lots more people today uh in surveys and whatever else especially young people describe themselves as having no religion. That's very true and increasingly true in the U S it's true here. Uh, lots of places in the West, especially. Um, but do you think they are without spiritual yearnings and, and where might the artists sort of detect those yearnings? A friend of mine, a, a theologian that I, uh, I know, uh, spent the last 20 years answering that question. <laughs> And he would go to Sundance Film Festival, uh, where we take our students um, every every year. And these are students mostly raised in fundamentalist churches. So they're not used to watching a Sundance independent film at all, right? So we have to (laughs) go through like preparation, like um, just warning them, trigger warnings and things like that. So I shouldn't laugh. Yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's more than trigger warnings because, because they don't know what's coming, you know. Right. So so they're absolutely shocked that you know somebody may talk about gay life or whatever that that you know the theme may be, right? The human human themes. But we always are able to guide these students at the end of let's say a week and a half to see in the film that, you know, they would be boycotting against if it was a fundamentalist church, but something transcendent in them. Mm -hmm. You know, why did this filmmaker uh, make a film about 
faith or whatever that that is so counter to our beliefs. And we not only see the film, we talk to the directors and makers, and you know, and and they're they're just as surprised as we are, right? That the, these whole bunch of Christian students are like <laughs> inviting them, and they're not boycotting their film as they they expect. Yeah, they they expect culture wars, but instead they get questions. Yeah, you know, and because we train them to ask good questions. <laughs> And they they go away saying, oh, my goodness, this was the best session I ever had at Sundance because you asked me about the fundamental questions that I was trying to get at Mm -hmm. and perhaps didn't have words to do. But the film captures it, right? The filmmakers may not understand what they're doing in a sense, because I, I know as an artist, that's true. Like, I don't know what I'm doing and I don't want to know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. What, I'm, what I'm doing is intuiting. And when, when you're trusting your intuition, the spirit always takes over. Now, for me, as a follower of Christ, you know, I, I have a huge advantage. I, I, can just, uh, I can just trust that process. But uh, a typical art maker or filmmaker who doesn't have that trust will wrestle and and their film becomes about wrestling. That that's why the film jumps out as transgressive, because the film captures something very important that most of us are not willing to ask. Tell me how art and making art has, in a sense, been a healing thing for you. Yeah. And I guess your faith alongside that. I know you experienced. All of us have experienced things in our lives, but I know you were right in the September 11 vicinity and you sort of lived next to that for a long time. That's a sort of a, you know, a wound of the city that's in front of you. And you've experienced that, but is, did your art have something and your faith have something to say at that time? Yeah. I think you go through trauma and you're always discovering how deep the fractures go. Um, you know, I'm 20 years later, I'm still experiencing uh, hairline fractures that I didn't know that was there, you know, yeah. and they come out. Um, and, you know, I had to, you know, to go back to my loft, three blocks away from where the tower stood. Um, my I had three children uh, who became ground zero children. Um, you know, I had to literally to go home was to face ground zero. Mm -hmm. And that has defined my um, certainly a decade of journeying through that trauma. And then, you know, we moved to Princeton so that my my former wife can uh, experience some healing from trauma and um, that did not solve the problem. But um, here I am, right? So I am painting and writing uh, everything that I've written uh, really in the past five years has been the result of me painting, first of all, and directly trusting my intuition to find healing um, as, you know, by being honest about the broken realities. And, you know, my, my, pigments, my minerals have to be pulverized, right? They have to be literally hammered by hand to 
create uh, prismatic, uh, you know, I'm making my own paint, uh, uh, mixing it with uh, Japanese haiguru and nikawa and uh, water-based. Um, and so by layering these, you're literally working with pulverized uh, materials that by working with them, they eventually become beautiful. And so it's brokenness leading into this beauty. And it, that's a metaphor of my life. Um, Kintsugi is a metaphor of my life. And um, uh, my bride and I uh, talk about how both of us have been through Kintsugi experiences. And um, here we are, how God not only mended us, but poured gold in the cracks, you know, and and so having gone through that so many times in my in my life, um, I I no longer doubt when things happen. And then of course, 2020 pandemic comes. You know, I I, I remember um, going to Columbine High School for their 20th commemoration, and one of the brothers of the survivors, um, he said, you know, I read your books and. Uh, I want you to know you're welcome here um, because you are also a survivor. And I never thought about that until that moment. But, um, you know, after 2020, we're all survivors. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, even if the pandemic is over, that trauma is going to linger. And, you know, we have to know, especially our churches and our communities have to have awareness of these lingering effects of trauma and uh, survivor's guilt. Everything that we, you know, I had to go through uh, as a 9-11, you know, ground zero resident, uh, we're going to be going through as nations, as cultures. So, so those, those are things that I uh, try to address in my work, uh, sitting behind me, uh, monumental paintings called Walking on Water, because they are uh, energy to the 311, uh, 2011 tsunami victims um, and in Japan. And they became an emblem for the cries of our heart, uh, cries of uh, nature uh, crying out uh, to us as well. And, and so I, I continue to deal with those themes, but ultimately I'm doing them to find a language of healing. Mm. It's beautiful. Just one last question. Um, we've talked about the way art and beauty can be evocative of, or perhaps a pointer towards the divine. Yes. Do you also, you need more than that. Like you need to get somewhere too, right? So you, you think that's taking you on a journey towards what though? How would you sum that up? Right. So I write about this uh, in my book as new newness. Uh, in, in, in the Bible, there's a passage, St. Paul says, in Christ, you are a new creation. And that new is kainos, Greek word kainos. And that word has, you know, we translate in English language as new. But when we say new, we, we think new iPhone. Right? <laughs> so so I, I we translated it uh, as new newness, uh, because what, the, what kainos means is that it's not something like a, a caterpillar, you know, a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. It's an entirely new species, a new, new, <laughs> you know, whatever. And, and so it's not just progressive evolution, but, but it's a categorically different existence altogether. 
and the miracle of the resurrection that we Christians celebrate in Easter is not somebody coming back to life, but it is about life itself reconfiguring itself to a new life, or that which we don't understand. But when, what the Bible tells us is that it looks like human being. It looks like a human being with a wound. Mm. Now, we think about that in context of Kintsugi, right? This is Kintsugi. God in Easter, you know, went through death and suffering on the cross and, and then death itself, but came back and chose to stay human <laughs> rather than this some, you know, super superhero with wings, you know, <laughs> chose to stay human with wounds still visible. And that means that everything that we go through on this side of eternity counts somehow. I don't understand a footy and I don't dare try to, you know, understand that. But it, it seriously means that everything we go through today, everything we're suffering from, the questions that we have, the doubts, the anger, frustration, pain, they count. And Christ is present with his tears in those places, um, footy. And um, we, as, as we go through that, hopefully in a community that, that can understand and behold our fractures together, um, we will be able to journey into uh, the new. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. A big thanks today to Marco Fujimura. His latest book is Art and Faith, A Theology of Making. And if you can find a way to see some of his art as well, I know you'll be glad you did. We'll put some links in the show notes to lead you to where you can see what I'm talking about. On his website, you can see some of his latest work, Walking on Water, which is an elegy to the victims of the 2011 Tohoku Great Earthquake and Tsunami. It's also become an elegy to the climate change crisis, as well as a sort of homage to human resilience in dire circumstances. I recommend it. Next week. The key to being a humble thinker and someone who actually knows that you don't know everything is that other people are sources of learning for you. This was so brought home to me when I was a teacher because I went out of university having studied an ancient history degree and got placed into classrooms with performing artists. And I spent most of the first five years of those classrooms learning how do performing artists see the world because I'm nothing like a performing artist. And yet they made my world so much richer.